Alright, book of Philippians, if you've got a device or a Bible, if you want to swipe or turn there, you can do that. We'll be in chapter 4 this morning. <clears throat> the whole of the Bible is a story that is laser-focused on one person, and that person is Jesus. So everything prior to Jesus' arrival here on earth is full of anticipation, full of promise, full of yearning. He is the one people have heard about and talked about and looked forward to for centuries. And then after his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we now look back to his time on earth, what he taught, what he accomplished, his salvation that he purchased and provided for us. And the book of Philippians is no different than all of this. It talks about everyday matters, But all of it is revolving around Jesus. Jesus is the center, the one that we orient around. And so like earth orbiting around the sun, our lives are intended to orbit around the Son of God. And the constant call that we hear is to believe in Jesus, to trust in Him. And in Philippians, we see the intersection of sickness and friendship and imprisonment and joy, and suffering. And Paul is trying to make sense of all of these seemingly contrasting realities by looking at Jesus, making sense of the whole of life by looking at Jesus. So he holds Jesus up. He says, life is found in him. He says, in Jesus, death is gain. And so Jesus is over all of it. And and Paul says, work out your faith in Jesus. In all of these realities of life, work out your faith in Jesus. Focus on him. So, So there's this clear call, believe the gospel. Now a criticism of this constant call to faith in Jesus is, yeah, but what do I need to do, right? I can believe the gospel, and it's as though we almost assume that, but but what am I supposed to to do. And I've heard this frequently. As it pertains to salvation, what we need to do, Paul is really clear. Nothing. He says explicitly, put no confidence in the flesh. What he's saying is there's nothing you can do in your flesh to save yourself. But he's also clear that trust in Jesus, that putting, finding confidence in Jesus will change us. It's going to create new desires within us. It's going to move us out of our individualism. It's going to cause us to want to build up Jesus' church. When we see that grace is better than anything else, that grace is so good, it will produce radical change in the way that we live our life. So the call of the Christian life is to believe the gospel. And many of us think, well, that's so simple. But it isn't really. I mean, it is in some senses, but it's not in others. When we believe the gospel, the radical nature of grace, its blazing goodness will change us. It will change our motivations. It will change our passions. It will impact us in profound ways. Ways. So the fact that we struggle to focus on Jesus, to orient our lives around Him, 
proves the fact that believing the gospel is not simple. It's a simplistic call, but it is not simple in the everyday for us. So we need these reminders. Today, in the verses that we're looking at, we get a little bit of what this looks like. What does this look like to, when we orient our lives around Jesus? What might that actually look like? So that's what we're going to look at in Philippians chapter 4. Let me pray for us, and then I'll read our verses. God, thank you so much for this morning. I pray that you would please teach us in these moments. Would you help us to see your goodness? But not just to see it, but would you cause it to hit our hearts with a thud? Would your goodness, your grace, change us? Even in these moments that we have together here this morning. You can do this. You promise to do this. So help us to be able to look at Jesus, see him for who he is, and be changed by the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, let's read these verses. Philippians 2, verses 4 through 9. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Sintichi. I got to admit, I looked up this, this name this week to listen how to pronounce it and realize why I've been pronouncing it wrong my whole life. I'd always said Sintike, but I learned this week that it's Sintichi. So if I stumble over it, it's because I've been saying it wrong my whole life. So I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Okay, so what we learn about Yodia and Sintichi is they are in conflict. Okay? The specifics of their conflict are undetermined, but it's significant enough for Paul to make mention of it. And the end of verse 3 really helps to qualify what Paul is saying here. He makes a, what I would call a bodacious statement. He's talking about people whose names are in the book of life. So essentially, Paul is saying these folks are saved by Jesus. And this is something that we are cautioned to be really careful about, to say this person is, this person is not saved by Jesus, right? But Paul, he's just going after it. 
here, right? And he's saying this about these individuals and some others as well. But, but the issue addressed by Paul is they're not acting like it. They are saved, but they are not acting like they are saved. So Paul's essentially saying, be who you are. Be who Jesus has made you. Jesus is the one who reconciles us to himself. He unifies people. And so this is really a call to unity. Gospel belief reconciles us to God. And this resolves our greatest problem, our greatest conflict. Whatever you think your greatest problem in life is, it's less than the fact we are sinners. That is our greatest problem in life. We have been separated from God. So if God, perfect God, holy God, no sin comes near him, can reconcile sinners to himself, for sure the gospel is powerful enough to reconcile two followers of Jesus together. But there's a caveat Paul makes regarding how these two women are to agree. They are to agree in the Lord. So Paul is going straight to the jugular here, right to the ultimate reality. Whatever their squabble was, it's likely something much smaller than Jesus. And we can assume this based on our own experiences. Think about yourself. Like, what fires you up? What really gets you hot? Someone driving slow in the left lane? Someone not using their blinker? Okay, this preaches to me, all right? This stuff gets, gets at me. Or like slow service at a restaurant, a lazy effort by somebody, maybe a political party or a certain political view someone has, maybe a spousal habit, someone not doing their job to your approval. We get angry about a lot of stuff, don't we? We create conflict over lots of petty things. Things that are much lesser in importance than Jesus. And we do this because we prioritize ourselves over Jesus. And this is what the New Testament author James writes about. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You ask selfishly, he's saying. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And I love how then James moves on here and he says, but God gives more grace. In the face of all of our petty squabbles and conflicts, he gives grace. Not so that we can be okay with sin, but to draw us out of our sin. So disagreement is typically not someone else being clueless. That, that's what we oftentimes feel like, right? Like that person just doesn't get it. That person is the one in the wrong. Disagreement is oftentimes disordered passions 
within us. Paul writes about this, a similar concept in the New Testament book, 1 Corinthians 6. And so he's writing to a church that they're in disagreement about other things. And he asks them, why not suffer wrong? Why not be the one who suffers wrong? Why not be the one who embodies the gospel like Jesus does on the cross as he suffers our wrong for us? Prioritizing Jesus gets us over ourselves and centers us on the one who reconciles. Paul is calling Jesus' church to see how agreement in Jesus provides perspective for us. It rightly orders our lives. So we need this constant reminder. Jesus is greater than us. Jesus is more important than we are. And as we believe this, it will release us from the pettiness of our own lives. From fighting about things that are just not worth fighting about. Okay, so we agree in the Lord. Okay, this is crucial that we understand that this is happening in Jesus. Now, before we move on from this, I want to highlight Paul's invitation for another to help in the pursuit of unity. He speaks to or about a true companion. Okay, it's not clear who exactly this is, but it's clear that there is this active role that others in the church must take to help achieve unity. Center Church... We must do this together. We must help one another. Many of us, if we think about our lives, we maybe haven't been given the best examples as to how to resolve conflict. Maybe we've, we've learned the Minnesotan ways of resolving conflict, right? You just try and ignore it, sweep it under the rug, don't say anything, right? Like, that's how many of us have been trained to resolve conflict reconciliation is hard it's oftentimes uncomfortable but the reason it's so necessary for us to engage in it is because we are always our lives are always telling a story and as followers of jesus the call is for us to tell the story of the gospel but when we are not unified what it does is it kills mission it kills gospel advancement because it's killing relationship and we're more focused on fighting the, the petty squabbles within here rather than being about what Jesus wants us to be about. Okay, so gospel belief provides the basis for unity, okay, which is found in Jesus' victory over sin. But it doesn't just provide the basis for unity, it also provides the power for ongoing unity as well. And this is why we want to continually go back to the gospel, not just as like the ABCs to conflict resolution, but the A to Z. Like, that's where conflict is going to be resolved, is in and through the gospel, in the Lord, the Lord being Jesus. So in Jesus. And I do find it so interesting how this section ends. It strongly invites us into reflecting on the beauty of conflict resolution. So we tend to run from conflict, to ignore it, to minimize it, to sweep it under the rug, but conflict resolution is a profound depiction of the gospel. It is 
the reconciliation of enemies. That is beautiful. That is commendable. That is excellence. We should think about these types of things because they ultimately cause us to get to Jesus. Okay, this next section of these verses have, has, it has a number of imperatives that I would say are downright shocking, okay? So we read in here, Rejoice in the Lord always. Do not be anxious about anything. Okay, if we step back from this and we think, who is always happy? If I would ask that question of you, no one's going to raise their hand. I know that. No one will honestly raise their hand on this. Who is scared of nothing? Nobody. These are impossibilities, at least for us. But not for God. They're not impossible. Now, Paul, he's proven he loves the church in Philippi, right? He's an earnest man. He he wants what's good for them, right? So he's not going to play games and say these things that are impossible And just to try to chide them, oh, do this thing, but you can't actually do it. What Paul is trying to do here is bring awareness to the grand reality of Jesus' salvation. If Jesus can save us from our sins, surely he can incite joy in our hearts. In fact, the fact of Jesus' salvation is the ground for these statements by Paul. In Jesus, the impossible becomes possible. And this is proven, even in Paul's words, as he's writing this encouragement to the church in Philippi. So we've got to look closely at this, okay? And it's going to come back to something that we've already talked about. Look what he says here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Okay, so it's not a flippant, just be happy. Right? There's, a, there's specificity here about where that rejoicing comes from. And then a little further down, Paul says it's in Christ Jesus that God's peace guards our hearts and our minds from anxiety and fear. So the key is to find these things in Jesus. Okay? To find these things not in ourselves, but outside of ourselves. But that's not how we typically read these verses, right? We read, rejoice in the Lord always as something we are supposed to do. And then we look out on this world filled with wars, loved ones being ravaged by cancer, pain filling our own bodies, and we wonder, how are we supposed to find joy in all of this? This is why it's so important for us to learn the right way to read our Bibles. Why it's so important for us to let the gospel shape our thinking in this. There is no place in the Bible that you will find where it says, you are responsible for creating your own joy. Nowhere in the Bible. This is God's role. You can even go back to the very beginning of the Bible. God's goodness is poured out of him as he creates because he wants to share his goodness with others. Not because he has any need in and of himself, but it's because he wants to share his goodness 
with others. If we read these imperatives as merely things we are supposed to do, this is bad news. This is bad news. Because we know that we don't have the vigor to keep up with that. To always have joy is not possible for us. We just can't do it no matter how hard we might try. We cannot do that. In Luke 18, 27, Jesus was teaching about salvation and he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And this applies to what Paul is instructing here. If constant joy is up to us, it is an unbearable burden we cannot maintain. If constant joy, though, is something God supplies, and he does, then it displays all the more, all the more the goodness of Jesus' salvation, all the more the goodness that's found in him, his kindness towards us. So when we read this, we shouldn't hear primarily a law or moral imperative, but rather a reminder of God's goodness. He gives this to us, part of his grace. And he does this because he can't help but love. It's just his goodness that spills out of him. This is who God is. Okay, so, so don't read this as a burden. Don't read this as a law that you need to uphold. Read this as God's goodness, giving something to you that you can't do on your own, but that's available to you in Jesus. Now, the question, maybe some of you have, why is this not my experience? Why do I feel bound up by fear so often? Why is my joy frequently lacking? I think these are legitimate questions. And just to answer this quickly, this is why the phrase in the Lord or in Christ Jesus is so important for us to see. I think it's really easy for us to read over that phrase, in the Lord. But it's there, and it's in the middle, it's the center part of, of these imperatives. It's the crucial aspect of them. We look for joy... We look for relief from stress, from anxiety, outside of Jesus, oftentimes. We run to other things. And in so doing, what we do is we display, that a, we display a lack of belief in Jesus. A lack of belief in the gospel. We are saying, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, we are saying the gospel is not enough. And what the Bible says over and over, the way it centers everything around Jesus is, Jesus is enough. And even when we don't think that, we don't feel that, we believe. We say, I don't believe this, or I don't feel this right now, Jesus, but I trust you. In one of the Gospels, we hear this phrase, I believe help my unbelief. We all have those days when, when our belief is so tiny. It, it feels like it's hanging on by a thread, right? I believe, help my unbelief. 
So Paul is calling the church to be rigorous in trusting Jesus. And part of that rigor is asking others for help. Because there are a lot of days when we just, we're, we're at the end of our rope. We don't see it, we don't feel it. And so it's asking for others, will you preach the gospel to me? Okay, so at every turn of the Bible, there's this movement away from the works of humanity and towards the work of God. And so we really do need, the Bible goes to great pains to get us here, we really need to get to the end of ourselves. And Paul's point here is our joy depends on it. Our happiness depends on us getting to the end of ourselves. And I I would say Paul has a ton of credibility here as he's writing this, as he's talking about this. He's not writing from a coffee shop, right? Where he's got his laptop put out his journal, set in the perfect spot, the coffee right there, and Instagramming, like the Bible there as well, and Instagramming all of that, right? Like that's not his reality as he's writing this. He's not in a tropical location. He is in prison as he's writing this to us. There's legitimacy to what he is saying. So no one can come at Paul and be like, yeah, well, you don't know my situation. He might not. But I'm guessing most of us, if not all of us, have not been in that situation. He is imprisoned and he is filled with joy. And so he's looking at Yodia and Sintichi and, and how their selfish pursuits, and when, when I say selfish pursuits, I want you to think of a contrast to in the Lord. Okay? Their selfish pursuits are outside of the Lord, okay? So Paul's looking at them in their selfish pursuits, and he's seeing how it's led them to anger, to unhappiness, to conflict with one another. And selfishness never leads to happiness. I talk to my kids about this all the time, right? They will make a selfish decision, and so often it ends in tears. Like, they they were thinking that they were looking out for their own best interests. This is what they really wanted. But it ended up hurting them or someone else so often. This is the picture of selfishness. And so Paul is driving home this emphasis on being in Jesus. In Jesus. And so it's good for us to wrestle with. Not just to hear like the pastor preach about it and then move on with life, but throughout our days to begin to wrestle with what does this look like? What does it mean for me to live in Jesus? How do we make our lives more about Jesus so that we would be marked by joy? So that we would be marked by the non-anxious, being the non-anxious person. Okay, quick word here on being anxious. So the context in Philippi. The church in Philippi was facing opposition to the gospel outside of the church. Okay, they were being attacked from the outside. They were also dealing with false teachers within as well. There are enemies of the cross of Christ all around them. There's internal conflict within their own church. 
right? They have many reasons to be anxious as a church, just like you and I do as well. Our lives are filled with tons of opportunities to be anxious. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, Jesus is teaching about people feeling anxious, about having what they need. And, And there's this really interesting twist that happens as he's acknowledging, like, yeah, you, you need clothes, you need food, and so forth. But, but in all of that, the way he addresses their anxiety is he says, seek God's righteousness. And, and many people might say, yeah, but what about, what about this thing? What about this physical need? And it's just really interesting to see how Jesus drives people to the ultimate spiritual reality. Not saying that those other things are unimportant, but just prioritizing things in the right way above our own physical realities is our spiritual reality. And first and foremost, we should be concerned with that. And so often, a lot of our anxiety is occurring because we've disordered the physical over the spiritual. I'm not saying all the time. Okay, but a lot of times that is the reality. Okay, quick word on prayer here as well. So Paul calls the church in Philippi to bathe the whole of their lives in prayer. He, he says that here in these verses. If what we're seeing here, as we've talked about already, is that God is the giver of all good gifts, and he gives grace upon grace, then his call for prayer in everything is not a legalistic exercise, but rather it is another means by which we encounter God's goodness. So I think many of us probably have been brought up thinking about prayer is what maybe a good Christian does. This is an obligation that Christians have. They've got to spend their time in prayer. Paul's encouraging his readers to offer up prayers with thanksgiving. Okay? So he's not saying do it out of duty, not do it out of obligation. He's calling them to continually offer up prayers with thanksgiving. And and part of what he's trying to get us to understand is the fact that if we see God for who he is, if we understand what Jesus has done for us, this is what it will produce coming to him in thanksgiving rather than coming to him, oh, because I have to, I'm supposed to, like, my parents said I'm supposed to do this, so I've got this guilt that, like, oh, I've got to, as an adult still, still got to do this thing, whether it's before a meal or before bed or whatever, and just, it becomes this religious exercise, and that's not the point. Like, God wants to be near to us. He wants us to see him for who he is so that when we come to him, we come with thanksgiving. That's what he's going for with us. That's why he extends grace upon grace to us. Okay, and then Paul closes this section with another reminder of what I would call Gospel 101, or just like the, the basics of the gospel. When I say gospel, I'm just talking about Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. So 
Paul provides this long list of things to think on. So I want us to notice what's not in this list. We're not called to think about going and feeding the hungry or clothing the naked or housing the homeless. And and those aren't bad things. But they're not the main thing. And so Paul is pulling us away from what we might do and towards what Jesus has done for us. It's not about who we are. It's about who Jesus is. Because if we want to think about all the good things that we've done and we want to think about us, then we're going to have to think about all the other things on the other side of that coin as well. So if we're going to think about true things, where do we go? Today we oftentimes will go to science. Culturally speaking, science is where true truth is at in a lot of ways, right? And and I think that's a legitimate answer. But I would also say we've got to go deeper. I'm not saying we need to go to a spot that's in contrast to science. I'm saying go deeper into this what's underneath the science, who set up the systems. And and ultimately, this gets us to Jesus. Because Jesus says explicitly, I am the truth. All truth comes from Jesus. And so all scientific truth also would be rooted in Jesus. Or if we're going to think about what is just, this isn't thinking about our definition of what justice might look like or how we might... Uh, right the wrong that someone else has done to us. That, that's not necessarily what justice is. But justice is thinking how Jesus acts in a just way and provides us true justice. How he makes us right, acceptable, pure before God. If we think about that which is lovely, 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. When we think about that which is lovely, we're not going to think about all the great ways that we've loved others. We're going to ultimately go to how Jesus has loved us when we didn't deserve it. And the fact that God is Love. This is who God is. He is love. Or who deserves worship? There's only one. Jesus. Paul is saying, think about Jesus. Think about Jesus. And I think our pessimism causes us to think, is that all I can think of? We're never in danger of thinking too much about Jesus. Or thinking too much about how the gospel informs our everyday life or how it speaks to what true life is. And so the call then is to just let the gospel shape us, form us. Let Jesus be primary. Think about what you have learned and received and heard and seen. And Paul is writing this in terms of thinking about this 
in what people see in him, but ultimately he wants to drive people to Jesus as well. So at the end of the day, Paul is trying to get his readers to Jesus, to just be infatuated with him, to never move on from Jesus, to get stuck there, be focused, laser-focused on Jesus. Lastly, I just want to make a comment on this, the end of this last verse. People oftentimes read this last verse as do these things and God will be with you. Act appropriately and then God will be with you. But this conflicts with the rest of the Bible if that's how we read this verse. God isn't transactional. What I mean by that is God doesn't bring a contract to us and say, if you do these things, then I'll love you. Then I'll give you good gifts. That's not how the gospel works. God comes to us before we loved him. God comes to us when we are in the midst of not experiencing peace. He comes to us in the midst of our sin. And so the way to read this is, as you do these things, God is with you. As you practice the things Paul is instructing, God will be with you, gifting peace and joy in the midst of all of life. Not if you do these things, He will be with you. As you do these things, He is with you. And even if you're not doing these things, He is pursuing you, chasing you, Desiring that you would turn from your anxious ways, from your lack of joy, and seek true life in Him. So, what Paul is going hard after here and throughout the book of Philippians is a recentering around Jesus. Not an obligatory religious association with Jesus where we just kind of half heartedly acknowledge Him, but a robust ordering of our life around Jesus. Understanding that true life. True joy, true freedom is only found in Jesus. Only found in Jesus. And then following him through our everyday, trusting Jesus, living like he is the one who saves us, thinking on what he has done, thinking about who he is, trusting Jesus only. As I was thinking about some of this, it reminded me of the Martin Luther quote that Chris shared last week. He said, to progress is always to begin again. So often we want to move on to the next thing, right? But Christian maturity says we keep going back to the foundation, to the starting point. And it made me think of this quote uh, that I've got on my, in my office uh, on my wall at home. So I'm going to read this. Progress in Christian living is thus paradoxical. We go forward by ever going back to Christ crucified and risen for us. Christian growth often is construed as a gradual upward path to sanctification. This picture is false and unbiblical. It implicitly carries us away from Christ and the liberation from ourselves 
that only his cross and resurrection can give. We are not called to progress in ourselves away from Christ, but to progress in Christ away from ourselves. All progress is a return to the beginning of the Christian life, where it enters more deeply into the wonder of God's love in Christ in the face of our sin and misery. The flesh can neither be reformed nor rehabilitated. It must be crucified. And this is why Paul's talking earlier in the book of Philippians about putting no confidence in the flesh. There's no hope in us, in what we can do. But the bigger point here is we go forward by going back to Jesus' death and his resurrection. We never move on from that. We always keep coming back to it, keep orienting, orbiting around this reality and letting this shape and form the whole of our lives.